notice something I practice a little more. Uh, we're going to go to Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3. Uh, just a reminder that uh, this is our last class until January 2nd, which uh, we're going to take, well, at least I'm taking uh, New Year's Eve off, so there will not be a Sunday class here on New Year's Eve, and then we'll resume regular schedule on Tuesday, following Tuesday the 2nd. So, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Let's open up in prayer and let's be thankful and grateful for um, another year in the books, another one to come, and uh, with the great hope, and I do mean hope in the means that, the, that God reveals it to us in terms of great expectation of joy for the future. Uh, so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for all things that you do for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this time of year, we celebrate his coming into the world as a man through the virgin birth, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that, you would have, that he would have a seed that would be the blessing of the world, not just to Israel, but to the all nations, all families. We are so amazed at him and grateful for him. And for you by giving us him, the amazing sacrifice that you went through, that you both went through, so that we could be saved. We don't deserve it. All of us, terrible sinners, a mess, in a messy world. But yet you give us these times of which we have wonderful traditions that remind us of what is important. And we are going to look at that today, Father, and we ask for your blessing through your Spirit upon each of us as we see the way in which we really enjoy the gifts that you've given us. We ask, Father, through your Spirit that each of us would be enlightened. In Christ's name, amen. So we all know the phrase, as Christ said, enter into the narrow gate. He said, few enter into the narrow gate uh, that leads to life. And you're not going to go through that narrow gate without dying first. You need a funeral before you can go through. And we die. And God made it, made it this way. That when he baptized us in the Spirit, we became dead in him. Crucified with him, Romans 6.3. Uh, and then there's, however, lingering in each of our hearts the desire for the old life the world, the flesh. We know it to be true that we have self that is constantly in the way. Self constantly begging us for attention. Self constantly seeking for itself. And this has died. And we wonder to ourselves, well, shoot, Lord, I don't think you did a good enough job in killing my old self because he seems to be quite alive. But God has... Um, made it so that when it comes to desire, we have to get in on that decision. And God has to convince us 
And once we're convinced, then it becomes easy. But this ability to enjoy the gifts that God has given us is the hardest thing in the world and at the same time the easiest thing in the world. And it's a matter of when do we make the decision that self is dead. Uh, when I researched, so I was, I've, I've been researching for days what to teach on Christmas, and uh, I came up with death. <laughs> so um, uh, let's see if it works. Once I run out of time, I, I have to, you know, Christmas is here. I have to go with what I got. The biggest lie in my call, I grew up in the 80s. I was a teenager in the 80s, 70s and 80s. The biggest lie in my culture was uh, told me that all matter was dead, along with God, and that humans could reason their way to freedom. And no doubt for many, uh, Christmas is no more than a few weeks off of school. We celebrate for that. Uh, it's a time of commercialism. Uh, Amazon must be making gazillions of dollars. And a few days off of work, and for those who have rejected Christ as their Savior or have no desire for him, then uh, Christmas is just a, a, a really a vacation and a, you know, a time that is actually where tradition invades their lives. Because there is a tradition. That tradition will not go away as much as secularism has tried to stamp it out. Note, uh, we usually select from the Christmas story. This is a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We usually select from the Christmas story just the pleasant bits, forgetting the awesome nature of the event in which God, the God of the universe, its creator and sustainer, draws near, draws near to this little planet and now speaks to us. And this is the close of this quote. The coming of God is not only a message of joy, but also fearful news for anyone who has a conscience. And why is that? Well, you know, it's when God comes into the world, it's like when your kid's messing around in the wrong room or in the wrong drawer, and then mom walks into the room. It's like when you're making fun of the boss in your cubicle, and then the boss, you turn around and he's there. And parents showed up when you were mucking about. When God comes into the world, it's a day of either blessing or reckoning, isn't it? And even for us as believers, there's a bit of fear here, and we're told to have it. Look at Malachi 3.1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. This turns out to be John the Baptist. And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now notice in verse 1, they delight in him, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. John delighted in him, and many delighted in him. But in verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Meaning... He purifies, and purification is judgment. Some are going to be judged in those who do not believe in him, those who do not uh, give account to his name, those who do not receive him. And so it's one or the other. And 
It's either judgment or blessing. And in fact, uh, the blessing that we receive is a result of judgment because we have accepted the judgment that has fallen upon the Lord. Now, some have a lot of loved ones to celebrate Christmas with. Some have none. Um, Some are alone. But when the Lord came to us through the gospel, if we turn to him in faith and delight in him, we're never alone. And we know this. You are never alone. He indwells you. He's with you. He clothes you. Some at Christmas receive a lot of gifts. Some receive none. But if we've delighted in Christ, then we've been given more than we can possibly fathom. It has not entered into the heart of man all the things that God has done for those who love him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2. But these things are invisible. Right? You have uh, an enormous family. Now, if you have a family now that you can enjoy this holiday with, then you're blessed. If they're good people, you know, if they're believers who love the Lord, you are doubly, triply blessed. But there's a lot of people who don't have that. There are a lot of people who are alone. And Christmas is a time when the feelings of aloneness or uh, a lack of having uh, seem to be exacerbated and, in, in, in fact, inflamed a bit within a lot of people. Um, the gift of Christ, who is yours, your brother, your husband, your king, your Lord, is not here. He's not visible. He's not tangible. The whole royal family, which is yours, I mean, imagine falling in, coming into heaven. Uh, reference uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, where we approach the new Jerusalem, and there's myriads and myriads of believers to welcome you. Imagine. But imagine now you have really no one. So it's invisible, not tangible. Christmas, we sing familiar carols, hymns. Something happens to us, I think in every person, uh, at least to some extent. There's a special kind of warmth that encircles us. The hardest heart is softened. We recall our childhood. I know I do. My mom made wonderful Christmases for us. Uh, We feel a certain homesickness, pastimes, pleasant places. There arises a desire for a world without violence or hardness of heart. That's why Christmas Carol, I love Charles Dickens' is a Christmas Carol. I've seen it many times. And, uh, you know, it's, you long for that end. It's, no matter how many times you see it, you rejoice in it. Scrooge's heart is changed. We long for that in others, this transformation. And there comes, therefore, a deeper sensitivity to those who are not materially blessed. Homeless, especially here in the Northwest. There's tons of homeless around us. And I know they're addicted, and I know that, you know, for almost all of them, it is their own decisions that have put them there. But how many of them, if they had good homes and good parents who loved them, wouldn't be there? How many, if the world were as good as it should be, that the homeless situation or the mental illness situation would be far less than what it is. Why this happens in society, meaning the Christmas tradition or the Christmas feeling, uh, is that is continually pursuing a way of life that is apart from God. But yet it still happens. There's the continual pursuit in our society of career before family, uh, accumulating wealth as a marker of status, treating sex as recreation, 
the reflexive, uh, reflexively, uh, the reflexive ability to mock authority and tradition, to put the individual desire before community responsibility, to treat the world as so much dead matter to be interrogated by scientific process, and assumes that our ancestors were a bunch of big, fat, dumb cavemen. Why does the tradition of Christmas refuse to be rubbed out by atheism and materialism? Man at bottom is a religious being, and that is why. God has made us. Man at bottom is truly a religious being. That's why we return. Society always returns to something of God, even if it's paganism. It's searching. We were made to worship. We are not primarily a rational, bestial, or sexual animal, but in fact a religious one. And so today I want to focus on a few gifts that, Chris, that God has given us through Christ. Christmas is a time of giving. That is a carryover of the tradition of the Magi. And in pointing to them, I want to point to the fact, first off, that you possess them. All three of these gifts, out of hundreds that God has given you, you possess. But I want to also highlight the connection between possession and enjoying. Do you enjoy the gifts that God has given you? Our fellowship with our, uh, sorry, our fellowship with God and all believers in the body of Christ is generally invisible. Our possessions are invisible. The value that God has bestowed upon us and blessed us with. And if the, the eyes of our ears and our hearts don't see and hear them, remember Christ said in, in, in quoting Isaiah chapter 6, they have ears but they don't hear, they have eyes but they don't see. And a lot of Christian believers are caught in that process. They have, but they don't see. They have, but they don't hear. So the first one we're going to look at is your eternal home. Go to John chapter 14, verse 1. As some of you know, my, my first wife died. She died in 1995. She died right in front of me in a hospital bed. I had a three-year-old girl, three and a half at that age. And my wife, Sharon, she, uh, she loved Christmas. We had marvelous Christmas. My wife, Sharon, actually roasted chestnuts. Not on an open fire, but in the oven. But I, I never even saw a chestnut before. I, once she gave them to me, I was like, oh, I've seen those in the supermarket and always wondered what they were. Um, but then she was gone, and I was alone, single dad with a little girl. And I tried to keep the tradition of Christmas going. And I went years, uh, and it, it didn't take long before I actually hated. I, I loathed the coming of it because it was just loneliness, the loneliness of myself it just exacerbated. It just increased at, um, at that time. And yet, I, I was a believer, and I knew this, but was it a reality? In fact, not at the time. John 14, 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I'm not going to go build a place for you and not move you in, is what Christ says. That would be uh, cruel. But I'm going to come for you. And we have a home. Uh, We should always uh, think of the fact that the Son of God here left his home. And all things being relative, he left the best place, heaven, to come to the worst place. I mean, talk about a downgrade. Adding to himself humanity, being limited by humanity, and coming into the world of sin and death. He comes even as an infant who is absolutely helpless, so helpless that angels need to help him not get killed. Angels have to warn his parents to take him to Egypt so that he will not die. He's completely vulnerable and weak. So if we don't have as much as we want in this time of year or at any time of year, if we're poor and alone, And on Christmas, as I said, that feeling can be heightened. What we do have as believers in Christ is we are blessed with wealth beyond our wildest dreams. Uh, Look at Ephesians 1.8. Go forward a couple books to Ephesians 1.18. The earthly things compared to the inheritance of Christ as no, absolutely no value. And yet, we find ourselves continue to be drawn to them. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You know, for the sake of brevity and time, I, I mean, I, I, this whole chapter in, in the opening of Ephesians is just astounding with the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. Election, predestination, blessings uh, that are heavenly, that are given to you before the foundation of the world. And a home in heaven that Christ himself went to build. Compared to whatever you get at Christmas, that really puts it in perspective. But then there's another component to blessing, which is time. Uh, The time component to blessing is how often you enjoy them. We all know this. you got a new thing. And you enjoyed it thoroughly for a short period of time, and then its appeal wore out. And uh, you're looking for a new one. We all go through this. A new car, a new house, a new relationship, whatever. And it peters out. The time component is how often do you enjoy them? And, of course, with blessing, God demands that we give as well as receive. So how often do you share them and give them to others? The presents, think about Christmas now. The presents are opened in a few minutes. You spend all that time and money and thought, and well, if you put thought into it, sometimes we don't. <laughs> but uh, presents are opened in minutes, and then it's over. The food is eaten in a very short amount of time. The people go home. Oftentimes you're like, thank God, they're gone. It's over, and you're alone pretty quickly. If you're a bachelor like me, getting back to my days before God blessed me with another wife, Uh, There's no telling how long that Christmas tree in my living room has actually been there. I remember one year, well, I think it was late into February, I left that Christmas tree there, and 
And anybody who came over, I was like, please don't touch it because every needle will fall off of it. A fire hazard. But there's a sort of a fast after the feast, isn't there? There's a buildup, a crescendo, and then it's gone. In the tradition of Christmas and Easter in the Christian church, it's not just a Catholic thing. Uh, There was a feast before the holidays. I'm not talking about Lent. I'm talking about feast, feast, uh, fasting days before the feast came. That's another story. So as we uh, we look at one, that first gift, which is your place in heaven, there's two more I want to look at. I should have labeled this gift two, but whatever. So uh, first uh, gift we'll look at, and you can go to Psalm 131, please, is the joy of children in an adult. This is a rarity. Uh, the joy of children in an adult, and I mean an adult brain and body. In Mark 10, Jesus said, as the disciples were telling the children to go away, Jesus said, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What did he mean by that? He said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Amazing. So, you know, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that we're all to be irresponsible little brats? Well, I hope not. But no, of course, we know that's not the case. But if we look a little farther at what it means to be a child with, you know, accepting all the things that are of a sinful nature, then we actually find some things that are clearly presented in the scripture as something that all of us should have. And one thing that children have in abundance is faith. They believe their parents. You can, I, I used to play tricks on my kids. I still, I do it to Maggie now. I'm trying to do it less. But my, my first daughter, I used to tell her all kinds of fibs just to have fun with her. But, uh, you know, that was, she, she's all right now. She's 32. She's, she's all right. She's come out of it. She doesn't, if I say anything that sounds a little off, she doesn't believe it at all. So um, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses to that. But children have faith in their parents. Children have imagination. You know what God wants us to have? Be creative and imaginative. Children have joy in their hearts. Like over the smallest things. And doesn't God want us to have joy all the time? It's a fruit of the Spirit. Doesn't God want us to have imagination? And at Christmas time, they're berserk. But But we have to get rid of the sinful stuff as well. And uh, so that's what I mean by a child in an adult body and brain. And I'll add here a spiritual adult. Also, faithfulness. In Philippians 2.22, speaking of Epaphroditus, Paul writes, He served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And this gift, however, is rare. Adults, as I see them, are generally cranky with current events portrayed in their favorite news station constantly running on their minds. I read about people who have Fox News playing in their house 24-7. Not, not, I, hey, if you do, that's, that's cool. I, please, don't listen to me. What I, my, my opinion doesn't matter, but 
I hope we all understand that media is somewhat tainted. Uh, and anyway, I'm going to leave that. I just crawled into a, halfway into a hole I'm going to try and get out of. Uh, this gift as a child is to be able to wonder like a child, have the imagination, creativity of a child, the faith of a child, but not the ignorance of a child, not the selfishness of a child, not the uncontrolled emotions of a child or the addictions of a child. Children are addicted. Uh, just well, The first one is generally sugar and presents or whatever, but... And, you know, we're, we're to have none of that. So, anyway, look at Psalm 131. A song of a sense of David. Psalm 131. Oh, short one. Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Why should Israel hope in the Lord? Because of promises. The thing At the time of the writing of this psalm, I don't know particularly when this was written, but the later ones are, are at least close to the exile or post-exilic after the Babylonian captivity or just around that time. Things in Israel are not well. And yet, hope in the Lord, why should I do that? Because of his promises, because of his covenant. He cannot fail, he cannot lie, he must fulfill them. And so, as the psalmist says here, be as a child who, he says, I have quieted my soul. And I love, in the first uh, uh, couple, or it's a triplet there, in, I don't involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Imagine doing that. Oh, yeah, that's over my head. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not going to involve myself in it. Imagine the lack of stress you would have and anxiety because you did not try to involve yourself in things that are far too difficult for you to understand. And that's what children do. They trust. They don't bother themselves with difficult issues. They're full of joy and imagination and creativity. And God wants us to have these traits while God prunes away the negative aspects of them. Gift number two, so that's gift number one. Gift number two is agape love. I'm, I'm handpicking here, but there's, there's a method to my madness coming up, as you'll see. Agape love is God's divine love. I think most of us in this room are pretty familiar with this word. Uh, it means virtue. It means to have the benefit of another in mind. Uh, if the great definition of it is, of course, in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 4 through 8, love is kind, love is patient, and so on. Uh, and it is the virtue uh, that is the chief of all virtues. It has a tender love aspect that the whole world knows about, and it has that uh, personal, attractive kind of thing, a tender thing. And so most of the world knows something about that. But one of the great powers of agape love is the ability to give you to keep your thoughts off of yourself. And I love this aspect of agape. God's love annihilates bitterness, anger, aggravation, crankiness over the doings of others. Right? If you're like me, well, maybe I hope you're not, but if you're, we, we're kind of all sinners here, 
And uh, the things that make us most cranky or bitter or aggravated are generally people. The actions of people. What they say, what they do, or what I read of them doing or hear of them doing, say, on the news and so forth. And agape love annihilates that. That the doings of others don't actually take me out of fellowship, out of my, my sphere of peace, because my Lord, my God, has all things under control. So just like as we read in Psalm 131, O Israel, hope in the Lord. O church, hope in the Lord. Because all that he does and has given you has nothing to do with the evil and sin of others. The stuff that usually gets us all bent out of shape. Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Right, so it's shed abroad is a new King James term. Uh, has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, this is given to us. We have it in us. Right? We have, you have the Spirit in you. You know of the cross. You know the Lord. The, the manifestation of the love of God was right there on Calvary. And you know of this. Now, there's a whole lot more to know. But yet, here it is that the love of God is ready to be matured and manifested in you. Second uh, Timothy one seven for God has not given us a spirit of timidity or of fear but of power and love and discipline a spirit of love He has given it to us and so you are as a born again believer baptized by God the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit in union with Christ you are at the ready to be one who loves like God loves hence it's commanded to us. And so the one who possesses God's love and has a childlike heart, gift number one and gift number two that I'm emphasizing today, uh, have these gifts every morning. And I do, I want to emphasize the morning. If you pray in the morning, I pray uh, the Lord's Prayer in the morning before I get out of bed every day. Our Father, just that open. He's not my Father, He's our Father. He's your father and my father. That unites me to the royal family of God right in the first two words. I have a family that I'm connected to for eternity, brothers and sisters, each of us sharing one almighty father. Shouldn't I love you? And shouldn't I have great joy in my heart? Because my father is in heaven and his will will be done. His kingdom will come. We all share in this, and then we also give this to each other. So these gifts we give to each other are every day. Instead of ignoring someone, you assist them, you encourage them, you teach them. Instead of reacting to them in anger and bitterness, you respond with kindness and gentleness, clarity of thought so you can consider what is their benefit. With God's love, you are the ultimate gift giver every day. It's not just one day a year, it's every day. But we also understand that not all believers love in this way, correct? If your family is anything like mine, um, meaning the Chagrues, 
generally, at Christmas, we have wonderful celebrations, uh, times of together. It was great. They're a great and happy and fun family. All Irish. You know, things get a little heated, though. Um, there, the politics are, you know, you just, you learn that you just don't bring them up. I'm sure you have very similar situations. But, you know, if I were to stand in the middle of all the chagrues and say, hey, let me read to you the, the definition of God's love. Would they all just listen intently and then just sit down and debate their politics in a beneficial and meaningful way that would be actually very enlightening and educational to us all? No, they would not. All this, these two gifts and many more are given to us at salvation, but something has to happen before we can enjoy them. And this something is the hardest thing you will do, and it's the easiest thing you will do. And I I take that from C.S. Lewis, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, that when you finally give way and you know what God is doing and you agree with the process and then this becomes easy but as the more as you resist it it is so very hard what needs to happen before the gifts of Christ can function in the life can be looked upon actually as how we build our lives and we all we're all builders We all build. We have been building since we could make our own decisions. Since we were old enough to take responsibility for what we we, uh, decided to do. We've been building life. And that life is built through a marriage, a family, a home, a career, uh, how you deal with money, where you live, and so on. Everything about it. Your friends, everything. it's It's a building. And it's yours. It's full of your decisions. Go to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. And look at the first verse. God inspects the foundation of what you've built. He's doing it all the time. What you've built so far, right now, today, God is inspecting what you've built it on. If it's built on God's wisdom and will, God says, well done. If it's not built upon them, God says you've made a terrible, terrible mistake. We say, what? And he says, you've built upon the sand. No matter how lovely that first, second, and third floor of your home, your house, your life, I mean, uh, how beautiful the windows, how adorned the, the outside is, how beautiful it is, no matter how many beautiful things, furniture and things fill the rooms, God says the whole thing is going to fall down. We say to him, it isn't true. How can that be? And then God shows us. He does this to everybody. He sends the wind and the rain and the storm. Right? That's when you know. Oh, and it's painful. God sends the wind, the rain, the storm, the problem, the issue. 
And what have you built now, God says, when it all falls? And, and this is in Matthew chapter 7, if you have not built upon the rock, it's as mighty as its fall. Its fall was great. And this is out of his love. So look at uh, 127.1 Psalm. A song of ascents of Solomon. Uh, this is terrific that this is written by Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and retire late to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. How wonderful that Solomon wrote this. Solomon worked extremely hard for the things he attained and he built and he built a lot. And he called it, what's the word in Ecclesiastes? 1-1. One, one. Hevel. In the Hebrew, it's Hevel. In your New American Standard, it's vanity. That vanity's, there's a lot of debate on how to translate Hevel, but it really means fleeting or vaporous. What Solomon discovered is that he couldn't hold on to it. He couldn't control it. And... Things didn't make sense. And he called it fleeting. In the end, Solomon found no joy in what he built at all. And why? Well, he didn't build it according he didn't build it on the foundation of the Lord. He didn't. He he left the Lord. He turned from the Lord. He married a whole bunch of ladies, women who were serving false gods and he helped them serve their false gods. He turned from the Lord after all the Lord had done for him. But Solomon was very correct in what he said in Ecclesiastes as well, is that there's nothing new under the sun. Right now, after Western society has attempted to build without God, how long is Western society trying to build their culture and society without God? You know, since after the wars, after the world wars, I mean, it happened before then, but as it moved from the 50s to the 60s and then bled over into this lack of God, right? This God is dead society. After decades of failing. And then people realize that it doesn't work. They're realizing it now. It looks like it. Current trends that it's just not working. And people want to return to traditional values. And so religion comes back. And it will. As people hurt and go without, if, if the economic collapse happens that is predicted by many economists coming up in the near future, more people will go to church. It happened in 9-11. It, it always happens. People go to church. But Satan is always ready to counter and I think about this building. One thing that crossed my mind is this AI, is artificial intelligence. Right? It's a building. They're building it. And AI is going to be a god, isn't it? AI is going to take care of everything that you need. You won't have to worry about anything anymore. Sounds like God, doesn't it? It's paganism. It's a pagan silicon idol made out of silicon. The future, they say, are atheists in space. <laughs> atheists in space. It turns out that you do not 
want what you can only build. You don't want it. The Lord builds in the life, the one who loves him and keeps his commandments. This is my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and, if my father, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. You love me and keep my commands? Notice the preposition. It's with him. It's not in him. With him. This means alongside. The preposition is para. It means alongside or beside. But with is good. It's not in. Anyone who loves me and keeps my word, my Father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. That's a house. That's why I love this verse so much. This is a house that I want to live in. And it does not matter where your physical house on earth doesn't have anything to do with this. How many people you get to share Christmas with has nothing to do with this. How much stuff you can buy for others or receive has nothing to do with this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is yours. You can love him. You were made to. You can, by obedience and love, have him build your life. Sounds pretty easy. We talk about it here all the time. But it's not so easy, is it? There's something in the way. And so I turn to Moses. This is, the, this is the, the place where actually when I saw this, I thought, wow, could that be a Christmas message? And I thought, yeah, because somebody great has to die. <laughs> Moses, for instance, had, you know, so if you're going to build your own, and a lot of people can do this. I was never able to. I'm not a talented person in that kind of way. In other words, I could never really make money or, or build anything or establish anything that was the envy of anybody, really. And, uh, you know, I've always wanted to. <laughs> God says, no. I said, well, do I still have? He's like, no, your window's too, you're 57, dude. You're, n- you're never going to do it. So just give it up. Give it up. I don't want to. God says, give it up. And this is the lesson he's been, he has taught me very recently. Because if you have the talent, it's three things it seems to me that somebody needs to build in this world something that others would want. You know, and that's really what it comes down to. People have a lot of stuff, but not everybody enjoys their stuff. But they're never going to let on that they don't enjoy it. They're going to act like they enjoy it so that the people who envy them for enjoying it will continue to envy them. So, uh, but what do you need to build such a thing? And it generally circles around wealth. Is you need talent, some level of talent. You need work and you need luck. You need luck. A lot of people work hard and don't make it. So you need some ability. I'll call it talent. You need to work hard, and you need luck. And no, none of those go into this. Now, I'm not saying, this, this doesn't mean, hey, let go and let God and be lazy. No way. But you do the will of God. That's the work you do in whatever you're doing. And if God closes the door, you say, okay. If I pursued something and I wanted it so bad, I have so many things in my life that I have wanted and, I, and to me, they're good things. But God just says, no, no, not for you, dude. 
You can call me dude, but you know. Not for you. I've got something else for you. And I say, you know what? That's not what I want. Talk about a guy who had talent. Moses. Hard work. Had it in spades. Great leader. God called him the humblest man. What a man. And what did, God, what did he get? Well, Moses, you're going to set my people free out of Egypt. And that's amazing. He was scared to do it. He said, God, I can't. I don't even know how to talk. But God sends him anyway, gives him the help of his brother Aaron, and sends him, and Moses goes. And Moses performs miracles. Can you imagine how you would feel after you were able to turn the Nile into blood or make gnats by the gazillion come and invade a nation? No, this is, you have power. And then they finally, Egypt lets him, Pharaoh lets him go, and he has his people with him. Uh, most estimates, somewhere around two million. Call it a million to two million. And what were they like? It's pretty much agreed upon in all theological circles that Moses had the worst congregation that any man could ever hope for. And he had millions of them. God called him to a mission. God, Moses had one thing to do, is to get them into the promised land. And they fought him the whole way. Moses' journey is like building a house. It has an end. It has a beginning and a middle and an end. The journey is that, the hope of the journey is that you'll get there. That it will be accomplished. But, it wasn't accomplished for Moses. As soon as he got to the threshold of the promised land, he was told that he couldn't go in. We all know unfulfilled hopes. We hope to become a better person. It didn't work out. Better at whatever we do as a profession, it didn't work. To overcome a weakness, to overcome a secret sin. And we prayed and prayed about it. <clears throat> and our prayer seemed unanswered. Like, God, why didn't you just snatch it away from me? Why didn't you just intervene and make it all right? And it's because God is doing something to you. That's what he did to Moses. We must turn our backs on the world and the flesh if we have any hope of transforming them. And please hear me out when I say the word transforming. The church was never given the commission to change the world. You know, to make the world a better place to live. That's not the church's job. I'm talking about your world, your corner of it, your influence on others, your family, your neighbors, your friends, co-workers, and so on. <clears throat> the flesh. You're not going to improve the flesh. I'm talking about the physical body here. Using your body as an instrument of righteousness. Romans 6.13. The members of your body as instruments of righteousness. Romans 8 says that by the Spirit we control this thing. This body. We control it. We tell it what to do. For God, in the will of God. And that's what I mean here. We can fight to try and change the world. 
Christians have been doing that for a long time, at least trying. It never, ever worked. The great, I think the greatest example is Calvin in Geneva, who he, he put the, he, uh, he really put the um, a great amount of authority uh, to make, like, people go to church and stuff, you know, to go around watching people and make sure they did the right thing. It failed miserably. You can't force people. How many times have you tried to say to your body, you're not going to do this anymore? A lot of addiction in this world. You are no longer going to do this. Eyes, you are no longer going to look at that. But unless we turn our backs, this is what it is. It is not a, a fight against them. You cannot hope to overcome them. You turn your back on them. We have our own desires, and some of them, to be sure, in our own eyes, are very good things. And no doubt there are some of these desires that are not exactly what God wants for us. These are not the gifts that he gives us. And what he wants for us is to enjoy the gifts that he's given. Look at Deuteronomy 32. We want life with God. We want the right people. We want the right food. We want the right gifts. We want the right timing. We want success in all the things that we do. I mean, of course, you're not going to do things to fail at them. But what if they don't work? In other words, God closes a door or says, no, that's not my will. Here's Moses in Deuteronomy 32:48. The Lord spoke to Moses that very same day. Uh, 48, yeah. The Lord spoke to Moses that very same day saying, go up to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, and then die. I'm, I'm skipping through some of the parts here. Then die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people. Because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am given to the sons of Israel. I knew I'd be short for time, so I cut passages out. That was dumb. I'll read it again. Uh, Verse 49, Go up to this mountain, to the Arabim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for possession. Then die on this mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the sons of Israel. Moses had to die. Now, if we wrote this story, wouldn't you send him in? I would. I'd send him in first. And, you know, like one of these to the people of Israel behind him. Thanks for nothing, jerks. And send him in. And God said this to him, didn't he? It's in Exodus 32. Moses, stand aside after they made the golden calf. Stand aside. I'm going to annihilate them and I'll make a nation out of you. Moses said, don't do that. 
Don't do that. These are your people whom you've promised. Don't do it. And yet he's the one who doesn't get to go in. And to us it makes it seems unfair. And yes, he's the leader. Right? He's God's representative. He got angry at the sin of the people. Who is he to get angry at the sins of the people? God is the one who deals with sin, not with us, not us. That's why we're told not to judge. The sin of other people, we let God deal with that. That has nothing to do with us other than to love them and forgive them, forgive all. And Moses, as a representative of God, had to die. So what in the world has that got to do with Christmas? It's a really good question. For me to enjoy the gifts of God, self has got to die. Now, when you believed in Christ, and Romans 6.3 says you died with him. When he was crucified, you were crucified. When he died, you, the moment you believed in him as your Savior, you were killed. You weren't remade. You weren't modernized. You weren't made something. You were killed. And then, Romans 6.4, as he's raised from the dead, so are you. And then Paul gives us the purpose of it, so that you may walk in newness of life. And Paul has a lot more to write in Romans. And particularly, how do we walk in newness of life? And Romans 8 there is your chapter. Romans 8 is probably the most magnificent, to me, one of the most magnificent chapters in the New Testament or in the Bible itself. And that it's by the Spirit of God in which we understand that we are dead. And I, I claim that death by, you know, I believed in him. I know this, right? It's called retroactive positional truth. Uh, technically, theologically, it's I died when Christ was crucified. I was crucified. I'm dead. I'm no longer alive. I No longer do I live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2. But when we walk through that narrow gate that leads to life, we take with us the desire. The desire of the flesh, the desire of the world, that is itself, it's self-desire, the desire for me. We justify it. We find ways to justify it. And I'm, I want what I want. I'm willing to give a little. I'll give a little to God as long as I get what I want in the end. But am I really willing? Like Moses. And he tells Moses, climb up that mountain. Amen. I, if I'm, I don't know if I'd say, God, why don't you just kill me here? Why do I got to go all the way to the top of the mountain? Do you want to look at the promised land? Maybe I don't want to look at the promised land because I can't go in. I don't like rubbing it in my face. Whatever. I don't know what Moses thought. But, you know, he has to climb up that mountain himself and he has to die there alone with God. Death must come before life in the Christian life. And this is how God has absolutely done it. Death must come before the function of life. If you know you've been crucified with Christ because you believe in him, and when you believed in him, that is absolutely wonderful. That is a big step in this. But the, that is the first thing to know, but it's not the last. Desire, self-desire lives on. 
And with it, we can't enjoy God's gifts. They wear out. Haven't you felt yourself get familiar with things like salvation? That your Lord indwells you? That you have a spiritual gift? That you can actually contribute to a local body? That you actually have the ability to walk in newness of life? Haven't you gotten at times familiar with it? Because none of those things pander to self ever. Self has got to die. Thank God. Now, you, you can't do it. Thank God you can't do it. Self-priority has to die, and only then will God's gifts be enjoyed. Self dies at salvation, but desire for self lives on. Right? Christmas is about gifts. The gifts of God are not always what we ask for. Self dies at salvation. Desire for self lives on. The deeper, more entrenched self-desire in our minds and our hearts, the more it is entrenched, the less we function in the joy of the gifts that we've received from Christ. Now just see if you have, if you have joy in your life. But, you know, in uh, God is the one who's going to cause this growth. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I watered, one planted, one watered, and God is causing the growth. And God is causing the growth. He is, over time, slowly killing you. Thank God it's slow. So the Lord is born. Are you ready for him? It turns out actually none of us are. Uh, but in, there, in that way, we should all get along just fine because we all know that we're sinners saved, sinners cleansed. God is patient. But he's going to cause the loss and pain necessary, and he's going to call these gifts. The pain that you go through that rips away what God wants to prune so that you bear much fruit. John 15. So to Paul, well, first in Galatians 5, Now to those who belong to Christ, Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So if, and uh, this is one of those first class conditions, if we live by the Spirit, we do let us walk. Let it. You have to let it. You have to walk by means of the Spirit. I, I see no difference in this phrase than walking in newness of life in Romans 6. Walk, meaning live by the Spirit of God. Not for self. So when God, so again, going back to Moses Moses, I'm sure, wanted another group of people than the ones that he got. Sorry, Moses, you get what you get. When he sends the 12 spies into the promised land and 10 come back, frayed little kids, you know, he said, maybe I should have sent someone else. Too late. Maybe if he only sent Caleb and Joshua, if he sent two instead of 12, he would have been fine. But you can't take it back. How many decisions have we made in the past that have caused closed doors for us now that are never going to open no matter how hard we kick them? You're trying to pick that lock. God loves you too much not to bolt that door real tight 
You're not going to get through. But that's okay. Because no matter where you are, you can enjoy the gifts that God has given you. And God is in the process of killing your desire. Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12.9. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And who of us likes trials? James goes on to say that without the trials, you won't become mature. Without the trials, you won't become complete. So God is in the process, as I've been saying, of killing you. So you can enjoy his gifts without looking elsewhere. There's a lot of prayer in this. Uh, At least it is for me in this process where... You know, I come to understand that God doesn't want this or that. Or, you know, prayer gives me great comfort here uh, to be able to talk to God about that. Um, It's just like one of those things. Unless you do it, you don't really know too much about it. Like prayer here. And God will put you on your knees so that you will desire his communion. So now that Moses is in heaven, I doubt he regrets not getting into the promised land as he's standing in heaven. How many doors have we closed that will never open again because we've made bad decisions? I have no doubt that in heaven we'll see those closed doors as gifts from God. There are gifts within gifts within gifts. The point that I'm trying to bring out here today is that enjoying them. And while we're pursuing the things of self, we're not going to. Uh, And so God is in the process of removing things, removing things that he doesn't want us to hold on to anymore. And that process never ends, no matter how old we get. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit that brings us through your scripture We ask, Father, that through your scripture, our hearts would be enlightened according to the plan that you have for each of us. May we accept what you do for us and lead us into by means of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. Uh, We'll take our offering and uh, then let's pray for our offering. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to give. And we give, Father, uh, in worship of you. We ask, Father, that through your spirit that each of us would uh, be joyful uh, givers and that these finances would be used to your will. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.
Um, I'm going to close in prayer, but um, I, I thought we'd sing Joy to the World before we left. Um, it was my, um, when, I, when I grew up in uh, the Catholic Church, Blessed Sacrament Church, it was uh, two blocks from my house, our, our local church. And we always went to Midnight Mass, and after Midnight Mass, we'd go home and open presents. And uh, so I get my presents after church. And soon as and at, at every midnight mass, they played "Joy to the World" at the, the end of the service or the mass. And uh, as soon as I heard "Joy to the World," I bolted out that door and ran home. I only had to get home two blocks, and and I'd start ripping presents open. It was awesome. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> I figured, why not? We'll sing "Joy to the World." So I'll close in prayer, and then we'll sing, and then you're dismissed. All right? Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together, your royal family. Um, we just love you for who you are and, and who you are is so manifested by the fact that you gave us your son. He came into the world as a man, adding to himself humanity with this incredible union of God and man in that he died also for the sins of the whole world. Anyone listening to me who has not come to believe upon him, uh, it is he is waiting for you to believe, and to believe upon him is to accept him as Christ, meaning Savior, as your Lord and Savior who died for you. He paid for every single sin that you've ever committed. And as such, he is your Savior. If you believe upon him, you will have eternal life. We thank you, Father, for all that you've so greatly blessed us with. In Christ's name, amen.